0: I, I actually for the first time in a really long time I had to start actively deleting podcasts just based on title I like they were getting too far back oh, up I'm yeah. like I'm never gonna listen to this I'm never gonna listen to this I'm never gonna listen to this and now I, I, I finally unsubscribed from a few podcasts
1: You're like working code pod what's this <laughs> <laughs> my code already works without <laughs> tests t- <laughs> <laughs>
2: You're listening to Working Code with your hosts, one of whom probably just wrote a new JavaScript library, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim.
3: It is show number 58, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about 10x Developers. I guess in some cases, maybe to their face and in some cases behind their back. <laughs> uh, depends on who's listening. But first, as usual, we're going to start with our triumphs and fails. And Ben,
0: my man, you're going first. Awesome. Happy New Year, everybody. I'm going to kick off our first recording. I guess this is not our first show of 2022, nope. but it's our first recording of 2022. Yep. And I'm kicking off with a triumph. At work during the holidays, we have a code and deployment freeze, which means that between, I think it's like between December 23rd and January 3rd, you're not allowed to push anything to production. Usually just because so many people are out, should something go wrong, there may not be enough people around with the expertise to fix it, which is a terrifying thought, but whatever. We just go with the the flow. So with this, I'm not good at working on stuff if I can't deploy it. So because of this downtime, I knew I wanted to change my focus a little bit and do something a little bit more relaxed. And what I chose to do was upgrade our Angular JS library, which was on 1.2.22, which is like really old. And I wanted to try and upgrade it to 1.7.5, which is what another area of the app was running on. And it was just a a journey of looking at the Angular migration guide and essentially stepping through all the different version upgrades and what the breaking changes are and then seeing if those apply to our code base, which involved a lot of regular expressions, searching across tags and looking for various attributes and, and function calls to see if things apply and then creating a list of things that I want to investigate further. And then essentially just putting in the new library locally, refreshing the page seeing what works, what doesn't work. And then once I could get a fix in, then trying to figure out if this is a fix that would have to wait until after the Angular JS upgrade, or if this is something I could sort of like pre-build into the older version, but with the newer syntax or, you know, a slightly different call signature or something to that effect that would make it ready for the upgrade, but not a prerequisite of the upgrade. And uh, I went back and forth like that for like two and a half weeks, three weeks heading into the holidays and just after the holidays. And I'm super excited to say that as of about three hours ago, I deleted the entirety of the Angular JS 1.2.22 library, which was 67,000 lines of code and nothing exploded. It's been pretty exciting. I'm pretty pleased about that as is sort of the, uh, at my role on this podcast, I will say that I did it with no tests whatsoever. How
2: well, I know that was coming?
0: <laughs> I think you
3: think and, of that as a triumph in itself. Honestly, man, I feel like you're in Failed. a way it is. It's like you're, what you're saying to me is I jumped out of an airplane with no parachute and I survived. <laughs> I
2: survived. And I'm well, going to keep I, doing I, it. <laughs>
0: Here's the thing, right? I'll obviously caveat. I'm on the legacy team. I'm like the only one who touches this code anymore. There's no one who will come after me to look at this stuff. So there's a lot of, there's a lot more wiggle room than you would have when maybe working with a larger team. But it was so interesting because a lot of trying to figure out what needed to be done was again, taking this migration guide on the angularjs.org website, which is massive. I mean, it's like pages and pages and pages of documentation on what can break and then Trying to figure out what applies to our code base. So even if I had tests, I, I like, I wouldn't be able to rely on them. I mean, yes, would they help catch things? Potentially, but it wouldn't have made it any faster because I'd still have to look at every breaking change in the migration guide and then search through the code to see if it applied. Because even if I have tests, there's no guarantee that all the tests test the things that were breaking and even if they were testing the things that were breaking there's no guarantee that the nature of the breaking change would be caught or accurately depicted within the test so again yes tests would have helped perhaps but it would not have made it any faster or easier (laughs) because essentially I would have been doing all the manual correlation anyway have to. I'm going to give you a new title, Ben. You're the anti-pattern <laughs> advocate,
3: <laughs> anti-testing apologist. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That,
0: that, that might be better. We have no plans at this point to upgrade to a more modern, you know, to Angular two plus. I think it's at Angular thirteen these days. Oh. We have. There's no way we're going to get there. But
3: yeah, so uh, I'm detecting enthusiasm in your voice. Maybe not a ton of it, but some. It sounds like you enjoyed this process. And when you're uh, describing the process of, like, stepping through the version history and what are all the breaking changes and how does that affect all of our code, that's my nightmare. Uh, that's.
2: Yeah, it does not sound fun.
0: <laughs> I enjoy the journey of it, right? Understanding that it's a grueling process and then figuring out how do I take that and breaking it up into things that make it more manageable. So it's like I would have my, my Git branch that was my ng-upgrade integration branch, and I'd start working on various breaking changes and I'd say okay here's a breaking change that does affect the code base and I'd put it in and I'd make sure it works and then I would do an interactive rebase on the master branch and then move the change that I just made actually before I upgraded the angular.js library and then check out a detached version of that branch so essentially I was it was the old version of angular plus the fix that I just had I'm say okay now will this fix run properly in the angular? One point two point two two version because that means I could then deploy it pre upgrading of the Angular mm. and then have it ready to go.
2: Ah, uh, it took me a second to figure out what you were talking about. I'm not gonna lie, yeah, right yeah, there at the sorry. end, the circle was a little big, but now I see. Okay, you were making changes and trying to see if on the old and the new way that the change you made would still be a sufficient mm. M1, right,
0: like backwards compatible. Right.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because exactly.
0: ultimately. When I flip the switch and deploy the code that has the newer AngularJS version, I want that deploy to be as small as possible and have as few moving parts as possible, ideally just because the less that could actually break and go wrong. And I was able to actually get... And because you don't have tests. (laughs) And because I don't have tests. So I was able to get like 95% of all the breaking changes actually working with the earlier version of the AngularJS library deployed incrementally to production and then the actual final cutover was really just a handful of files that that depended on the actual changes in the latest library.
2: It's really good. Like Tim and I did that years ago. We had to do an upgrade and it was a pain going through and trying to figure out what all could break, what all could happen. I don't wish that on anyone. So the <laughs> fact that you seem to have enjoyed it and had a good time doing it. Kudos to you, Ben.
0: Power to you. (laughs) Well, and and thankfully no one else was working on this code base. If other people were actively adding code while I was trying to do this, I think that would have been a total nightmare. No, thank you. Yeah, that was kind of our situation. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, thank you. Anyway, so that's me. I'm excited about that. Adam, what do you got going on?
3: I am also going to go with a triumph. I know this has kind of just been the running theme For it feels like months now in my triumphs and fails, but we are making big steps towards multi-tenant. And as the weeks tick by, we continue to make steps. My big accomplishment from the last uh, week or so, we had this one microservice that I mean, I guess we were kind of thinking of it as a microservice, but it was a separate process running on the same server, right? So we have our EC2 instance running the, the primary monolith app server. And then we had broken out this other thing to run on its own, and it could run like a cluster of multiple processes and that sort of thing. But it was all running on the same server. It was like a node being managed by PM2. And one of the hurdles of moving toward multi-tenant was to get all of those little processes that were maybe somewhere between a half a dozen and a dozen of these things that were living on all of our monolith app servers, one for each customer, needed to get those to be off of those servers so that we could then take the later step of getting the app server itself off of those servers. And so as of this last week, I have shut down all non monolith processes on all production and QA servers. Nice. nice, Very exciting. So now it's just the big one (laughs) and that one's not going to be accomplished by next week. It'll probably be months before that's completely accomplished. The next big thing, this is a maybe a good discussion to have at some point, but The next big thing is going to be we used ORM pretty heavily. And I'm regretting that decision, if only. And and I have a lot of reasons that I don't like ORM, but in this case, I'm regretting it because now we're talking about changing our servers so that any node in the cluster can handle any request for any customer. And in order to do that, all of our customer databases are separate. And so they have different data source names in Lucy. And so Orm depends on the the application static data source name. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So at this point, our understanding is that we're going to have to replace all of our Orm usage with straight up queries before we can take that next leap, which that's not going to be a quick, easy process.
0: We had a guy at work. This was maybe like a year or two ago. Come to my team, and he was like, "Hey, we're thinking of ways to reduce our costs, and we had a we have a similar situation where we have different tenants running in a lot of different places." Mm-hmm. And he was like, "How much work do you think it would take if every request that comes into the application could use an arbitrary S3 bucket for storage and an arbitrary data source for data access?" I'm like, "In the entire app?" He's like, "Yeah, you know, just for like every every request coming into the app." I was like, "That's a massive amount of work." Yeah, you know, two three years. <laughs> of ten people's time. <laughs> That's right. I need a team of ten in five years. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Meanwhile, tell me if this picture has a bird in it. Oh yeah, I need two weeks. One person.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So are you still running? Last time we had talked, you you had said you were you like doubled the number of boxes mm. that you had to have. Are you still running at the at a larger number? Or are you somewhere in a happy medium now? What's going so, on? So, yeah,
3: I think the thing that we talked about last time was all of our QA servers had, our, our architecture is changing, right? Instead of manually managed EC2 instances, we're switching to more of a config as code, and that's creating Fargate instances. And those are, I mean, it's great from a developer productivity and a toil and like doing deploys and everything. It's all so much better. But The resources required in order to run those same containers, roughly equivalent containers on Fargate versus EC2, the cost is almost triple. And so Mm, we we made that change for all of our QA. And then we went, oh god, we're going to have to figure something out. We've got time, but paying developers is certainly a lot more expensive than paying for hardware every month. So true, true. Yeah, I guess that's it for me. So uh, Tim, how about you, man? How you doing?
1: I'm doing okay. I got I got a fail. Of course, I wasn't on last episode or last show because I was sick and I'm still not 100% so I don't really have any I pretty much spent all of last week in bed and then the beginning of this week I'm trying my best to work and catch up but I I, every couple hours I got to go lay down for a half hour or so because yeah this this thing's kicking my butt so I thought it was COVID it was not it was not which I'm actually Kind of glad because I've done everything right. Triple vaccinated, got the booster, been social distancing and all that stuff. But yeah, this is just influenza A. Eh? So, but it's no joke. So,
2: I well, hate you got it. That sucks.
1: But I'm glad to be on the show again and talk to you guys and get to hear what Nate, what, what do we talk about 10x developers? And I think we're going to talk a little bit. About, uh, a listener had some comments, called me out on some stuff I said wrong. So, <laughs> Not quite a hater. Maybe I can turn them into one because I need more haters. It'll make me feel better.
3: <laughs> so Nathan, we're gonna need you to call back and say that Postgres
1: sucks. No. <laughs> Shots fire. <laughs> right. So that's me. They're not a whole lot. How about you, Carol?
2: I'm gonna go with a failure too. I just haven't felt good this week. Not as bad as you, just been like off but today my head's starting really bad. But I'm it's, on it's
1: not a competition. <laughs>
2: I am on call, too, so I don't know if being on call has just, like, stressed me out and made me not feel good, but this call has sucked. It's not been a fun one. It's my second week of it, and there are just fires kind of all over the place that Uh. seem like fires. Not a single one of them have been an actual fire. It has been researched backwards to find out that some other application is down or somebody stopped sending us data this year. Or, you know what? Two weeks ago, we posted code because you told us to take this out. It doesn't work anymore. And now you're complaining (laughs) that it doesn't work anymore. And I'm just like, these are stupid requests to be coming in. So it's just been a a not fun on-call situation. So... I'm ready for it to be over. Two more days, my on-call's over, and I get to be done.
3: I had this realization about on-call not too long ago. Since we're a startup, right, there's only a handful of developers. When it started, I was on-call 24-7 because I was like the only non-CEO developer. Our CEO was <laughs> capable, but the, the this product was more my in my hands, and we have another one that's kind of his thing. And then we hired another developer, and my on-call time got cut in half, right, after he was up to speed. Right and then we hired another developer and my on call time only went down to a third of its original and then you know that when we hire another it'll be a fourth of its original so it's like right. diminishing returns the more people you hire if you were you know optimizing for less frequent on call the amount that each new hire contributes to be to you being on call less frequently is fewer and like less and less if yeah. that makes sense it does yeah It's. I mean, not that I don't want to hire people because it's not
0: going to help as much,
3: but still, it's like, it was kind of a sad thought when I had it.
0: (laughs) You just got to go into management and then you have no on-call responsibilities at all.
2: How about that, Adam? I mean,
0: maybe we talked to...
2: (laughs) We did. (laughs) We did.
0: Honestly, I mean, so this was
2: something I had
3: thought about mentioning during my triumph. But one of the things that I have done this week as well was... So I kind of came across this old post from whatever, a video from GitHub's like online conference thing they did a couple of months back. And they have a new version of their like projects thing that's built into their issues, right? It used to just be like, you could do a Kanban board of your issues. Well, now they have a whole lot more functionality built in. It's kind of more like a mix of Kanban and spreadsheets and you can change views and stuff, whatever. (laughs) But so I, I took the opportunity to go through all seven pages of the issues in our repo and put them all into one project called roadmap and start to prioritize things. Like I, it comes with a status column by default. I added importance, urgency, and then priority because the way we think about things is sort of that matrix grid of, is it important? And is it urgent? If it's neither, then you probably shouldn't do it. If it's both, you should probably do it now. If it's only yep. one, then kind of sooner rather than later, whatever. But, and so, yeah. And, and I went through all seven pages of our issues and tried to get them all at least in the right bucket, whether it's like icebox, come back to this way later or backlog, come back to this sooner sort of thing. And that, I think that's very therapeutic yeah, to my personality. Yes. I, I very much enjoyed it. It wasn't even something that originally I was supposed to do. It was something that Steve, our CEO was going to do and he didn't get to it within like 24 hours. And so I started getting itchy. I was like, I can, I could organize <laughs> stuff. And so I went and organized stuff and he thanked me for it later, but. It was, that's just my personality, right? I think we talked about this either last week or recently, how I'm starting to notice that I have these tendencies that you might associate with a product manager, right? I I like to organize, I like to, Mm -hmm. I like to write certain types of documentation and that just certain aspects of that stuff is appealing to me. So I enjoyed that. (laughs) Okay. Are we ready to move on?
2: Yeah. Sounds
3: like it. So here, let's do this. Our listeners are smart people. They're going to know it's time to pay the bills. So we're going to do our Audible ad here. Just like every other podcast on the planet, you can help us out by going to audibletrial.com slash workingcodepod. Sign up for a free trial. costs you nothing. We get a little bit of money from that, and you get a free audiobook and 30 days to listen to it. And then you can continue on if you like it or not if you don't.
1: Assuming you don't have one. It's like, I've had one for years. I have hundreds of books. I couldn't live without Audible. I
2: love Audible. Like It's always on in my car. That or a podcast. I get tired of music because I listen to music when I code. So books and podcasts are great for car rides.
1: But if you are one of the two people left in the world who don't have (laughs) Audible, please, by all means, help us out. That'd be awesome.
3: We'd really appreciate it.
1: We would. Okay.
3: So we're going to play this uh, voicemail that we got from Nathan for you. Let me tee this up by saying... We used to have a phone number. I guess technically we still do, but we don't advertise it anymore because telephones are old technology and the audio quality is just garbage. Instead, what you can do is make a voice memo on your phone and email that to us at workingcodepod at gmail.com. Or I guess if you would rather you and you have a good mic for your computer, you can record it on your computer and send it to the same email address and you'll hear right now this awesome quality voice memo we got from Nathan.
4: Hey, it's your boy, Nathan Strutz, again. What's up, friends? I'm calling to talk about episode 49, Revisiting Replatforming. I think you need a little help, so I happily volunteer to be your ColdFusion to.NET liaison or interpreter or whatever you need, starting off. Tim said, .NET only runs on Windows. Well, guess what? .NET no longer Only runs on Windows. Over the past five years, a rewritten version of .NET called .NET Core has been running on Windows, Mac, and Linux. In 2020, Microsoft renamed .NET Core to .NET 5. So this is the way going forward. This technology works for me. I develop on Windows, but I deploy all my code to Linux containers. Pretty great. Recently, .NET 6 was released, and it's really good. It's open source. It runs on any platform. It's wicked fast, just blazingly quick by default. It comes with C Sharp 10 and F Sharp 6. Different languages in .NET are like Kotlin or Java or Groovy in the JVM world. So different languages can run. C Sharp has a lot of beautiful parts in the language, especially more in recent years where it's taken a lot of JavaScript characteristics without losing all of its type safety. For example, you can use the var keyword almost everywhere. The compiler will just figure out all the data types for you. It has all those map, filter, reduce types of functions that can run across all types of collections, even asynchronously across CPU cores, but they go by slightly different names. Select instead of map, where instead of filter, aggregate instead of reduce. The idea is that it's kind of more like querying your data, so they use SQL words. Also, tiny anonymous arrow functions are really common. Again, type safety still works easily thanks to that compiler. C-sharp 10 just came out with .NET 6. Some of the more notable parts are implicit using statements so that your class files are a lot smaller and simpler, and minimal APIs, like an entire microservice in three lines of code. Of course, it's more if you want to talk to a database or whatever, but three lines of code! That's awesome. Adam and Ben mentioned ASP.NET Webforms. Well, they're right. Web forms was absolutely the worst. Just terrible. postback, sloppy syntax, terrible. Of course, you can make terrible code in any language, but it wasn't a good platform for large apps. Of course, that didn't stop a lot of people, and it pretty quickly broke down when things became complex. Ugh. But ASP.NET MVC, that's actually really good. It uses conventions that just work. It's a very well-thought-out framework. It has starter templates that are quickly generated with the .NET CLI, uses the Razor syntax for HTML templates, which is pretty easy. It's uh, like a more elegant CFML PHP, in my opinion. It's well thought out. I actually don't use Razor, though, because I started down the path of JavaScript interfaces with React and Vue, which are better suited and can integrate natively with .NET applications. That's a cool thing. Moving on, Carol mentioned some pain with MVVM. I feel for you. I have also experienced a form of MVVM hell, and it can be pretty bad and super confusing. Adam was talking about server-side JS as a good choice. Yeah, it's very web-native. I would say you could look at .NET, and you may be pleasantly surprised. c really is faster, and very similar to TypeScript since Microsoft had a lot to say in it. Final note, the number of programmers in the world doubles. Every five to ten years, it's debatable, but That means maybe every five years, an actual majority of coders have no idea about any of the things from, say, 2015 and before. Very few of the younger people I've worked with have ever heard of ColdFusion, much less seen it. To be fair, they also haven't run into PHP. But let that sink in. Our industry has an immense growth rate, but the demand is still outpacing it. That really explains a lot of the programming memes I see. All these brand new programmers with no idea how we got here. It's crazy. Alright, happy holidays. Thanks for listening to me for once. I really enjoy the podcast. Adios.
2: I love Nathan.
3: Yeah, Nathan's great. One of my favorite people from Arizona to hang out with.
2: Yeah. How does
1: he not talk without any ums or ahs?
2: He, right? when he speaks, he definitely very Yeah, professional. when he speaks, it sounds like he's reading written words.
3: But also yeah. not like he's following a script.
2: No, not like he's following a script, but there's no he doesn't pause, there's nothing. he's great. He's just great. He's Clearly, crazy. I have this down packed. He's good.
1: <laughs> Although he Word. totally called me out.
2: Well, everybody does, Tim.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, I'm going to just start with that, Nathan. I don't know where I heard that I only ran on Windows. I'm sorry, I repeated <laughs> false information. It used to. No,
2: it used to. Yeah, you were it, accurate yeah, five
1: years ago. Uh, well, you're old. You forget that. That's true.
2: .Net Core thing, but I yeah. didn't know it was um, .Net Five.
3: Yeah. So, I guess it's official, right? Now Nathan is our .NET ambassador. Yeah, He he volunteered. So, when we have .NET questions, Mm -hmm. we'll give him a call.
0: His passion about .NET reminds me of something that I hear from time to time, which is this concept of dark matter developers. I don't know if anyone has heard this phrase.
3: It sounds really interesting, but I
0: don't think I've heard it. it. It's this idea that in the social media spheres, there are the... Popular technologies like everybody's talking about React and everyone's talking about Node mm. and Deno and Rust and, and you, if all you do is go mm. along by what you see people talking about publicly, you sort of get this sense that the world has moved on and these are the hot new technologies and this is what everyone's doing. And then what, what you don't realize is that there's this giant mass of quiet developers that are just sitting there churning out work using technology that's been battle-tested and it's not necessarily the new hot thing, although .NET is continuing to evolve, obviously. And you don't realize that some massive population of people use .NET and it's a super popular language and it just doesn't get the kind of play that some of the the newer technologies get.
3: Yeah, so it's the opposite side of the vocal minority. It's the yeah. quiet majority. Yeah, that makes sense. It does. And I would say it seems intuitive that that's
0: probably true. It's so hard to deal with sometimes, though. Like, you know, the nagging voice in the back of your head as someone who works on typically viewed as legacy technologies. Yeah, I mean, it's FOMO, right? Yeah, it's FOMO. And actually, to, to his point in, in the recording, that the number of developers doubles every five years. And a lot of these people don't even know what you're talking oh, yeah. about. That's, that is even... And if you consider like those are the younger people, they're probably the ones also more likely to be very heavily engaged in social media or more engaged in social media. It's like a, this compounding effect that you get these weird echo chambers yeah. of of the new people not knowing the old stuff and thinking all the new hotness in social media is the thing to be focusing on. Yeah, I,
1: I kind of feel that way when Sean Corfield kind of berates me for like not reading a book from 1960 <laughs> about programming. I'm like, OK, Sean, whatever. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well you know
0: everything everything that's what's the phrase like everything is that's old is new again even I forget which podcast it was they were talking about predictions for the upcoming year and they were talking about how monoliths are kind of back in vogue again. Like everyone swung <laughs> really hard into the microservices world and they realized how hard that is to do, especially with small teams. And now the idea of these modular monoliths or things with more of a monorepo type thing, like people are like, oh yeah, that actually solved a whole lot of problems and was made life a lot easier. And then React was like super, super popular. And now people are not leaving React, but people are moving from React to other things like Vue and and some of the server side, even in the React world, going back to some of the server side rendering. It's it's so fascinating mm-hmm. to watch.
2: I feel like you get to be a pioneer of that, Ben, of the moving to microservices and then going back to monolith. <laughs>
0: You're like, I did it
2: first. I was there.
0: Oh, man. Shudder, shudder.
2: <laughs> With that, we were talking today at work about things that we're going to learn in 2022. And our newest engineer that we hired says, well, I guess I'm going to learn Angular JS because we use that here. And I was like, that's the first time and I don't know how long someone said I'm going to learn AngularJS. <laughs> I was like, whoa, it, it just caught me off guard that someone has to learn this because everybody knows it or I thought. So yeah, that was interesting. That's exciting. <laughs> it's,
3: it's been a long time since I've done Angular. I, I probably was in like the 1.2-ish yeah. era and then we had a couple of small projects in it, but it didn't end up going anywhere. That was like a product that we tried out and then The product itself kind of flopped. And by the time we came back and had a similar need, React was more appealing to us. And so we, we tried that out and that kind of stuck. So I have no idea what modern Angular looks like. I did. I wanted to say I was kind of surprised when Nathan said that .NET is now open source. I didn't really realize that's the, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's great for them. I think that's only going to benefit the platform and it probably helps with it being cross platform. And I mean, I guess going back to the whole thing, the whole episode that he was referring to was about replatforming. And so that patron that we were talking about in that episode, they've since settled on Kotlin, which I think is like a Java thing.
2: Uh Does this sound like a Tim word? Yeah, I don't know. Tim knows Kotlin. I don't know why, though.
1: I, I don't know Kotlin. What are you talking about?
2: <laughs> I could have swore you said this before.
1: No, I, I got schooled on it because I didn't know Ooh, I didn't okay. Yeah. We were talking about that on this episode that Nathan's talking about. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
2: oh, okay. It's all coming Yeah, back. we were reviewing
1: <laughs> Kotlin. I'm like, I don't know nothing about Kotlin. <laughs> okay. Maybe we just remembered hearing you say it. Yeah. Yeah. I said the word. That's about it.
2: <laughs>
3: I said I didn't know anything about it. Do any of you guys have any experience with like C sharp or F sharp? Yeah, C sharp's what I wrote at
2: the government gig and we were on yeah, okay. net. So we had a VB project as well, and when I was leaving, they were in the process of doing the architect planning to switch the VB project over to .NET Core. So yeah. I left before that happened, but yeah, C Sharp.
3: I did some C Sharp at a previous life, and I would have to say, like, if some of the things that are available to me now were either not available at all or were just, like, sort of outlawed, like, this, the whole hypothetical question that we explored in episode 49. For various reasons, certain things were eliminated from the list. So if, if like if I couldn't do Node right now, probably near the top of my list would be like C Sharp, especially if I had known that it would run on any platform and was open source, that sort of thing.
1: Oh, so I, I wasn't the only one?
3: Yeah. No, I I, I, <laughs> I was mean, under yeah, the impression yeah. too that... I, I knew that there was... I was a familiar that there was like a... What was it called? Mono? Was that it? Where you could run... ASP I think it yeah it wasn't like classic ASP it was ASP.net on Linux or something but it was like a, a community project for trying to get some compatibility with .net and I don't think it had gotten very far at the time that I was playing with it and it just wasn't as useful as I would have needed it to be so yeah
1: so I I have a question about arrow functions he, Nathan was was touting the arrow yeah. functions and and I know I mean I know what they are I've been exposed to them Scala uses them. You can use them in in JavaScript too, I'm pretty sure. But I mean, it's pretty much, it's a Lambda. It's an anonymous function. But here's my question on it. It seems to me the fact that you're building a function, you don't have a name on it to describe what it does, almost Mm -hmm. kind of goes against the clean code principle in my mind that we talked about from Uncle Bob Martin. Am I wrong in that? It's an interesting question to ask. So even
3: before arrow functions it was possible to do unnamed closures in javascript right so you could like as a callback you could just pass an anonymous function is what it was called uh, because it doesn't have a name and the impression that i got after a few years of doing that was that while it was possible and yeah it saved you some keystrokes and not having to think about what an appropriate name for the function would be the cost of that choice was that then in a stack trace you would just get like function instead of the name of the function, which makes yeah. it harder to figure out uh, what's what you're looking at in that stack trace. I think the stack trace is really the only thing I can think of for those anonymous functions that is a, a downside.
1: Yeah, because our, our Scala stack we used it, it there's arrow functions all over the place, mm-hmm. and but I, I've never personally wrote one just because I like to know what is that function doing and I give it a name. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I just don't understand is it buying is it buying me anything else other than the fact that I'm not having to name it? And I I, I hear the argument is that well this is a function that you're only going to use exactly in one place all the time. And that's probably sure. true, but I'm sure that there's an exception. Maybe I can't yeah. think of one. But So
3: in in JavaScript, there are other things about them. The biggest one being that it th- an arrow function has no this pointer, I guess is what you would call it. It, it uses the this from its parent closure. It maintains the this.
0: Right. In which it was
1: defined. It has access to the parent scope. Is that what you're saying?
3: Not just that it has access. All closures have access, but like, so for example, jQuery, right? If you did a, an event handler for a button click in jQuery and you give it a function as the callback and you did like dollar sign parentheses this to get the element that was clicked. If your callback function was an arrow function, you wouldn't get the element that was clicked because there is no this. You get basically an empty object. I actually ran into that the other day because I just happened to be updating some code that was jQuery and a button click handler <laughs> and it's like, "Oh, I, I Unix, I know this, right? I threw in an arrow function because I thought I was being clever and then I spent 15 minutes going, "Why it? Why am I not getting <laughs> the the reference that I should be getting?" Oh, duh, because this doesn't exist or is not what I'm expecting it to be because
1: what's in that arrow function is only the, the, the parameters you declare on the left hand side, right? Well, it yeah. still
3: has a this pointer, but it doesn't get a unique this pointer bound to anything other gotcha. than okay. The, All right. I understand the parent, like whatever the whatever this pointed to immediately before the arrow function is what it points to inside the arrow function.
1: Gotcha. Okay.
3: And that's always, specific to JavaScript. I don't know if yeah. that's also true for. Yeah, I don't think Scala. Really true in
1: Scala.
0: There's also some syntactic sugar in terms of the return statements, like with a with a fat arrow. If it's a if if like it's just a simple mapping expression, for example, like your fat arrow function takes point and then returns point dot x or something then you you could theoretically exclude even the curly brackets around the function body. And you, I think you can even exclude the return statement. You can. But going back to your clean code statement, the idea of defining a function and not having curly braces and not having explicit return statement to me feels like...
2: Dirty.
0: That feels like as far away from clean <laughs> as you can get. It feels so dirty.
3: <laughs> Did we talk... Yeah. Maybe it was on the after show or something, but didn't we talk recently about a blog post that kind of came across my radar, like maybe it's time to stop recommending Clean Code.
2: Yep, I I have it open in my tab still and I haven't finished reading it. That's a long post.
3: It is. It's got a lot of comments on it too. So the scroll bar is not exactly indicative of uh, (laughs) how long it is, but it is a long post by itself. And I mean, just in case we haven't already covered it, I think that the thesis of that discussion was just that like, it was an okay book for its time, but a lot has changed. And also there's a lot that can be kind of discarded Based on if you have if you happen to be lucky enough to have 10 or 20 years of experience in the industry,
2: right. so learned. Yeah. you know,
3: you learn better practices, things that are specific to your language or your framework or whatever that kind of overrule the default rules that you would assume
0: from something like clean code. One of the things, going back to Nathan's call on the .NET stuff, one of the podcasts that I really enjoy listening to is called .NET Rocks. And part of why I enjoy it so much is I don't know anything really about .NET. I, I dabbled in C-sharp maybe like 15 years ago for like three months. So I'm sure that what I use then is has like almost no resemblance to what is actually available today. But I, I find it really interesting to listen to podcasts about technologies that I don't have any experience with because it, it's like you're not only listening, you're trying to then translate what they're saying into something that may or may not make sense in the technologies that you understand. And I like I, I love listening to GoLang podcasts and the .NET podcasts and just any podcast I can get my hands on. Really. Are you
3: are you doing active listening? Like, are you listening with intent to try and learn when you do these things? Because you talk about this, and it just seems so foreign to me. I I would be so confused trying to follow these discussions about something that I have no idea what's going on.
0: It's a background noise, but I it's a background noise during certain activities. Like I couldn't code and listen to a mm-hmm. podcast, for example. But I can do it when driving or when walking the dog. Something where I can sort of dedicate some amount of brain processing to it. A lot of times, I don't understand even what they're talking about, so it, it's more like light listening. And then they'll say something that strikes a chord, and then I kind of go into a deeper listening state, mm. and then pop back up to lighter listening. Because also in podcasts, there's a lot of there's a lot of just jib jab, and then eventually they talk <laughs> I, about something. What are you talking about? Technical. I know what you're
2: talking
0: about. <laughs> we never do that. So you know, some of it doesn't require as much deep thinking, but just really fun. I actually think I, I, over the holidays, I reached a sort of, uh, terminal velocity of podcasts that I can listen to. I, I actually, for the first time in a really long time, I had to start actively deleting podcasts just based on title. I like, they were getting too far back oh, up. I'm yeah. like, I'm never going to listen to this. I'm never going to listen to this. I'm never going to listen to this. And now I I finally unsubscribe from a few podcasts.
1: Like Working Code Pod, what's this (laughs) (laughs) My code already
2: works (laughs) without tests. I need to send Nathan a hug because MV Model View View Model MVVM is a pain in the butt, and I'm glad that he agrees with that. So
3: yeah, (laughs) woohoo! I I don't think I know anybody that did that doesn't have scars from it in one way or another. So
2: bad the cuts, they're deep. So
3: cool. I I also liked his comment about just, and we've briefly touched on this before, but like the number of programmers in the world doubles every five to ten years. So like half of programmers have never heard of stuff that started or before twenty (laughs) fifteen. Twenty fifteen seems like not that. I mean, it was not that long ago. Crazy. That was the year before Trump got elected. Like,
1: so does that mean in a hundred years, like eighty percent of the population will be programmers? I don't know the math on that.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I think probably by the math, it's an exponential growth. Probably by then, everybody on the planet will be a programmer, okay. and half of all people in wombs.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, there'll be no programmers. It'll all be AI. It's true. It be writing itself.
3: Yeah, self-writing,
2: self-writing code.
3: So 10X developers, we said we were going to talk about this. What is that? Yeah. So it kind of came up in uh, this, this Twitter thread that was shared in our discord and it was uh, like a thread full of advice. The whole, I mean, it was this whole thing. <laughs> there was a bunch of advice given by a, a former engineering manager and I don't want to get into it, but one of the things in the thread was that 10X developers are real and yeah. And, and so it just sort of reignited that, that argument. I mean, is
1: that a T-shirt size or <laughs>
3: only immediately following uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas? <laughs> yeah, right, I yeah, kind of feeling like that right now.
0: But a 10x developer, I, I believe the concept is that there are developers that are 10 times more productive than other developers, uh, like
2: naturally, uh, right? Just they're yeah, just like they, it at they just have a
3: proglivity. Yeah. And I think that it's a very loaded discussion, right? There's people that consider themselves to be awesome, and so they call themselves 10x developers. And I think that in some ways it can be used as like gatekeeping to tell people that they're terrible or whatever to make people feel bad and of course that's bad but at the same time this is all actually based on more than one like several scientific studies and part of the part of what makes this not well understood is that the nuance gets lost here the difference it's not that there are people that are 10 times better than the average developer it's that the difference between the absolute best developers that were studied and the absolute worst was about 10x and the things that they were measuring were like time to debug a problem sort of thing. and so 10 times the amount of time versus like the the worst people took 10 times longer than the best people sort of thing. And I mean that totally sounds reasonable, right there's gonna be people that are there's gonna be a bell curve and the people at the it, all it's saying is that the distance between the low end and the high end of the bell curve is about 10x.
1: I mean, is that different than any other field of work? I mean,
3: no, it's not. And I mean, so I think part of what made the discussion interesting in Discord was that bundled in with that advice and like in some of the articles, the blog posts that you'll find about it, some people will say things like, okay, so 10X developers are real. And if you can get them, that would obviously sort of like by definition be better than not getting them. So you should try to get them on your team or hire them, whatever. And you will hear arguments like, wouldn't you rather have one Isaac Newton rather than 10 average developers? And I mean, even that, I, I think, like, I, I think I might, given the choice, I might take 10 average developers.
0: Well, no one wants to work with the jerk, right? right? So, yeah. so a lot of times the 10x developer concept is sort of co located with this idea of the jerk. Developer who thinks that they're better mm. than everybody else yeah. and like doesn't want to deal with other people and doesn't. Why do I have a product manager? Like that's stupid. I could just rock this out myself. Like nobody wants to deal with that kind of person, regardless of how good they are. But I do think that there are people who are really good at their jobs who are also just terribly nice people and great to get along with and work really well with teams.
1: Yeah. We had one like that. And, and as development, sk- I, I see development skills like programming code and fixing bugs and diagnosing problems as a developer. I think. In my mind, what is more valuable is the person who is very good at architecting a complete system from scratch, right? They can take it, you can give them an idea and they can architect a complete system. And then once it's basically a prototype and flushed out, now those other developers can go in and they they know where things are. It makes sense. Everything flows together. That kind of person, I think they're definitely worth, because we had one on our team and he was amazing. He built you know structures that we kind of go and still look at today and go, well, how did he build that? Okay, let me kind of copy what he did. That was you know pretty amazing. And the other developers are better for it. Right. Because they're now working in a system that makes sense rather than a ball of mud. So I don't when I think 10x, 10x developers, just single contributors who all they're doing is just working on a code set. Maybe some are better than others. I don't know what the factor is there, but I think to me, what's the most valuable is who's architecting the system from the beginning to create the ecosphere that you're going to be working in, because we all know that once it's, you know, architected, it's very hard to re-architect it again. So you got to do that very well, the at least the first time. And I think the
0: comment that you're making about an individual contributor versus an architect makes me also think about the difference between an individual contributor and a and a team culture that is conducive towards productivity. Because I'm sure that many of us have worked with the the person who can just jam out code really fast, but then you're the one supporting it for the next right. five years. And, and it's like the junkiest code. They just happen to rip it out in a weekend. But I think when I think of productivity, it's not just about an individual. It's about how the team works and what the team's priorities are. And you have to create an environment in which people can really flex their creativity and flex their productivity and get into their states of flow. And if you're not in a good environment, I I feel like no matter how productive you are naturally, that's going to be hampered to the point where it probably drive you crazy.
3: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole lot more to being a good developer than being able to implement what it says in the spec and to pull the team together to help define that vision to, think around corners before they're visible. These are all really important skills to develop.
2: I also struggle with when managers start comparing developers to each other. So when they ask for work to be done and they go, okay, what's well, going to take you a day to do this? But if I go ask this to next developer, it's only going to take them mm. an hour to get this done. So why can't you, why can't you work at that level? Like, why aren't you good enough? And it it does start pitting you against each other. So They can cause problems in that way if it's not managed correctly.
3: So I don't have a whole lot of management experience. And I think that you at least have a bunch of team lead experience, if not better than that, Carol, just my my recollection of your experience. How, if you have any thoughts or, or experience in this situation, how would somebody better handle that situation if they were that manager?
2: Oh, so we've had uh, personally been involved with those issues before where we've had requests come in for big development work to be done. And I put out a quote for my team to do the work and it comes back down and says, hey, we talked to someone else on the other team who is a great engineer. And Mm -hmm. he says, oh, without any knowledge of what's going on, he could do it in half the time. Right. My response back to upper management is take it off my team and go put it on his team then. Mm. Like, fine. If he can (laughs) get it done faster, that's fine. I'm telling you, my team can't get it done any faster. That's it. Like, I gave you what I gave you based off of what I researched. I did all the legwork for the specs. Like, I'm telling you, this is what we would need. And nine times out of 10, when they go back and relook or the other developer gets brought in, it's nothing was communicated fully. Mm. They didn't have full specs. It was, hey, how about how long, just guess, Mm -hmm. would it take you to do this? And they're like, oh, you know, about a week. Right. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to take about six weeks because QA testing is going to take two weeks. Right, on yeah, yeah. So, yeah.
3: Yeah, they just don't fully understand what they're being asked or they gave that the the classic over-optimistic, yeah. oh, yeah, hey, a week.
2: Eh, maybe something, yes, but I push back. That's my approach is push back and I don't usually get walked on, so.
3: <laughs> yeah, you're not the type of person to let anybody walk on you.
2: Not usually. I mean, there are times I don't have a choice, like not walk on me, but there are times that we just have to bite the bullet and go, look, commitments were made outside of what we know and we're going to do our best to achieve it. But there's a good, there's knowledge up front that the, that the deadlines you're asking for aren't doable by us. And I just want everyone to know that it might not happen. Right. And as long as we communicate up front, I feel better about missing deadlines than not up, than not saying it.
0: Right. This is totally random, but it just popped into my mind when you were talking about putting stuff on the other team. I don't know why. Very <laughs> non sequitur. But there's this guy. He's used to be in the Node world. I don't think he actually does Node anymore. This guy, TJ Holloway, Chuck. Yep. Who Creator of created Express. Express. Yeah. He he created like all of the super popular Node libraries back in the day. An unbelievably productive human being, and I remember reading a thread somewhere. Where someone was actually theorizing that he wasn't a real person, that he was actually a group of developers (laughs) (laughs) that were purposefully trying to portray themselves as an individual to be seen as super productive. But just the amount of stuff.
3: Colluding so that they can all claim to be him (laughs) and all get the rewards of being thought to be him.
2: That'd be funny.
0: Funny, yeah. I feel like team culture is... People always talk about team culture as being so important, but I always feel like there's so many little details that don't get discussed in terms of productivity. Oh yeah. One of the things that popped in my head as we're talking here was the whole two-way doors concept that I think Jeff Bezos made very popular. And the idea for people who haven't heard of this is that there are decisions, there are doorways that you can walk through. And if you can walk back out the other way, then it's it's not a decision that you have to make very heavily. Whereas, like a door that you walk through and you can never open it again, like you actually have to do a lot of planning up front because you don't get to undo that decision. There are teams that that have this concept of two way doors and bias towards action and incremental builds, and yeah, I don't I don't know where I'm going with the thought, but I think part of what makes someone productive is. They have a lot of experience. They sort of have a sense of what decisions they can make, what decisions they can't make on their own, what things actually need a team to help with, and then understanding what happens if they make a mistake. And then they have to be working on a team that's okay with all of that stuff happening. And they have to be working in a company where individual contributors might be allowed to make more independent decisions and have a certain amount of autonomy and freedom and be able to collaborate with people maybe outside of their team to shape the product and to in order to be productive i feel like you have to have not just instincts about programming you have to have instincts about how to work with your team and work with your company and when it's okay to make mistakes and when it's not okay to make mistakes like it's not just how fast can i write code if anything how fast can i write code is like the smallest part of what it takes to be right super super productive
1: and I'd say be careful who's the one that's defining what productivity is, right. right? Some people are like number of tickets done, number of bugs fixed, how quickly they were turned around, meet, meeting a deadline that someone set in a certain period of time. Is that productivity? I have seen some people that take a really long time, in my opinion, to do something. But when they do it, it's rock solid. Yeah. And there's others who are really fast. And when they do it, you know that you're going to be cleaning up stuff for the next few weeks. So how do you define productivity? Sure. Are they 10X? Whatever. But if you're the one labeling yourself 10X, you need to go to another room and find someone smarter than you uh, (laughs) because hubris is on its way.
3: Go let some air out of your head. Exactly. Okay. This episode of Working Code is brought to you by 10X Podcasters. If you know, you know. And listeners like you. (laughs) If you like what we're doing here, you might want to consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Pod. If you are like living under a rock and you don't know what Patreon is, it's basically a way for you to vote for the things that you would like to continue to exist. And you vote by giving your money to those things. You can support us for as little as $4 a month. And all of our patrons get access to our after show, which is just more of us rambling on about random whatever, and early access to new episodes as soon as they're ready. We really appreciate all of our patrons, but our biggest thanks go out to our top patrons, Mani and Peter. But you know what? If patronizing podcasts isn't your thing, that's totally cool too. We appreciate just that you took the time to listen. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your coworkers and with your friends and your grandma too listeners or listeners. It would really help us out if you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please send us your questions and show topics on Twitter or Instagram at Working Code Pod, or you can join our Discord and share your ideas there. And just like Nathan, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at WorkingCodePod at gmail.com. We'll catch you next week. And until then.
1: So remember, guys, today, actually, we're recording. It's January 6th, and it is the one-year anniversary of when the catchphrase, Your Heart Matters, came up in Mm -hmm. response to kind of the traumatic day that we had last year, January 6th. I forgot about that. No matter which side of the aisle you're on, you have to say that that was quite something after going through one year of pandemic and then to see what happened at the Capitol. Uh, And now here we are in year two of the pandemic, I think it's safe to say that every one of us are very much underestimating the amount of stress that our lives have been under these past two years. So just remember,
3: mm-hmm.
1: your heart matters.
3: Yep. We're, we're wrapping up a second full year of pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yep. March of 2020, yeah. <laughs> it's bananas. All right. Love you guys. And we're going to go to the after show.
2: You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.
1: It's an It's a lambda. It's an anonymous... anonymous. Words
3: are hard. (laughs) Words are hard. Bloopers. (laughs)